Bretto, this is the week to get your tickets to the Wellness Summit. Why is that MP? Because Bretto, one lucky person who registers before this Sunday, July 28, will win the ultimate wellness experience. Imagine two nights in the Wellness Real Estate epicenter of Australia, Lucent Gasworks in Brisbane. The lucky winner receives return airfares to Brisbane on Virgin Australia. Plus, we'll organise you an Uber from Brisbane Airport to Lucent and back again. And we'll throw in 200 bucks in dining vouchers. And you can get an all-access, all-areas pass to Total Fusion, one of the best fitness studios in the country and the home of the largest Himalayan salt lamp in the Southern Hemisphere. Oh, positive ions going everywhere, Bretto. This incredible prize valued at over $2,000. Jeepers. All you need to do is register for the Wellness Summit by this Sunday, July 28. You're registering for 16 hours of powerhouse wellness over two days, August 17 and 18 in Melbourne, featuring your favourite Wellness Couch podcasters and world-class exhibitors. Can you afford to miss the biggest Wellness Summit ever? Tickets at thewellnesssummit.com. I'm Kim Forrester and welcome to Eudaimonia, the podcast that is all about flourishing. More than just the mundane or pleasure and pain, Eudaimonia calls for us to create a good life. It's about fulfillment, inspiration, joy. So plug in, relax and get ready for the goodness as we explore the characteristics and daily practices that can help you, your loved ones and your community flourish. It's often claimed that we live in free societies, but how many of us are truly free to express ourselves fully and unapologetically? Linda K. Klein is a storyteller and social innovator with an extensive background in social entrepreneurship and innovation and storytelling for good. Linda is the founder of Break Free Together, a not-for-profit organization that helps people claim their stories, their bodies, and themselves – And she's the author of the award-winning book, Pure, Inside the Evangelical Movement that Shamed a Generation of Young Women and How I Broke Free. I am absolutely delighted to be chatting with Linda today about how we can free ourselves from social constraints and live flourishing lives with an authentic sense of liberation. Linda, it is such a delight to connect with you. How are you over there in New York? I'm doing wonderfully. I'm so excited to be here with you. And I with you. Now, you were raised in a white American conservative evangelical community, and your book Pure is based on the trauma that you experienced trying to conform to the demands of sexual purity in that subculture. Can you perhaps share with my listeners a little of what it was like for you as a teenager living in an environment where there was such intense focus on remaining sexually pure? Well, first of all, I wonder if it might be useful for me to give you just a little bit of an insight into the world that I was in before I talk about my personal experience in it. Because, you know, unbeknownst to me, when I was in seventh grade, it was 1991, and I was joining the evangelical community and becoming a member of one of the first classes of young people to have grown up in what I now call the purity movement. Now, of course, I had no idea that that was the case. I just thought I was living you know, in uh, the world <laughs> and that this this community was reflective of the way things were and the way mm-hmm. things had always been. But in reality, you know, I was entering into a really intentional movement 
um, that taught that there were only two uh, roles or two identities that people could hold, particularly young people and particularly young women and girls, uh, which is you could either be pure or you could be impure. Mm. You could be lovable or you could be lucky if you'll ever be loved by a good Christian man. You could be worthy and part of our community, or you could be unworthy and and questionable, really. And you could lose your purity, not only by having uh, sexual experiences, but you could also lose your purity, in some people's opinions, by having sexual thoughts or having sexual feelings or, in the case of women and girls, by inspiring sexual thoughts and feelings in others. Mm. And I remember as a young person, you know, feeling at first, the first feeling that I had was really a feeling that this didn't feel right to me. Because there was something about it that was deeply objectifying of women and girls that I could sense even then. So in secular society, we were told as women and girls that we, you know, had to please men um, in terms of our sexual performance, I'm going to say. And when I say that, I don't just mean in terms of action, but how we appear, etc. Um, you know, by being sexy enough and therefore considered worthy and good and lovable. Yes. And <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Right? And, in, and in this world, you know, we were being taught that we had to please men and boys by being sexless enough, mm. right? By, again, wearing the right thing, looking the right way, talking the right way. So it was a very similar sort of form of objectification. So at the beginning, it felt, I don't know, something about it felt off to me even in the early days. But, you know, the reality is, is that when you are surrounded by something day in and day out, even when it feels off, even when it feels wrong, it can get inside of you. Oh, and yes. that's that's what happened to me. Slowly, I moved from annoyance to anxiety, and it began to feel like, um, like I was impure. I was bad. I started to feel like it didn't matter how much good I did, how many Bible studies I started, how many people I brought to church, you know, how how much I sang and played guitar in the in the band at church, whatever it was, you know, I would always be bad. There is so much to unpack in that story and that response you've just given me there, Linda. First of all, I can see how you were entrapped because you were entrapped in this expectation that was beyond what anybody could ever fulfill in their life. And so by being asked to be beyond human, basically, you then get trapped in the sense of wrongness because you're being told from everybody in your community well, that that you should be that way. And therefore, you're in your mind, I imagine you're feeling, well, that should be obtainable. I should be able to not have those thoughts or not want to call a boy or not have stirring desires. And yet, the community is telling you it's not pure. <laughs> you know, it's so funny that you bring that up because I just had a fascinating conversation with somebody from the Muslim community recently. And we were talking about shame in the Muslim community because, mm -hmm. again, you know, these things um, are global in many ways. We have global issues with sexual and gender control of women yes. and girls. Yes. Um, so we were talking about it and she was talking about the prevalence of shame in her community and how there was this expectation that you should always be experiencing shame. You should always be in a shame state. And as we were talking about her community, I realized, oh, wow, I think that that actually 
was an unrecognized expectation in our community as well. I think that the expectations were set to the point where they were unattainable so Mm. that we would always be in a state of shame. But of course, the way that they were presented was that they were attainable and you were bad if you could not meet those expectations. So they created that state of shame by promising that they were unattainable <laughs> while right. setting forth expectations that were unattainable, unattainable. So you would be in that state of shame, right? So researchers talk about the difference between guilt and shame. And I, I think that might be a good thing for us to pause on for a moment. So guilt, according to a researcher, is this feeling, I did something bad. Whereas shame is this feeling, I am something bad. Oh, that sounds so soul-destroying, basically, to live a life in that space. Absolutely. And also the difference between how guilt and shame impacts people is tremendous. So guilt, they say, um, is a moral emotion. It makes you a better person, essentially. Um, When you think about having done something wrong, say you lied to someone, um, but it doesn't define you as your being, you're more likely to go to that person and to right that wrong. So it actually makes you better right? It Uh, makes you connect with others. It makes you reach out. It makes you improve. Whereas shame, this feeling, I am something bad. I am impure. I am unworthy, right? That actually makes you disconnect. It makes you go into yourself um, and and move away from other people as much as you can, either by, you know, focusing inward, I'm so terrible, I'm so terrible, I'm so terrible, you know, which of course makes you not focusing on the other person um, or lashing out at them to keep them Mm. as far away from from you as possible or really going into secrecy, not telling anyone about this part of you that you are afraid um, will make them reject you or see you as bad uh, or any other number of ways. You disconnect from people. So you really, what we're doing is we're creating states of um, internal isolation around a subject that there should be so much room for connection that we're building into people. So I actually believe that many of us are forced into a sense of shame in different ways all around the world. So it might be our sexual desires, um, our sexuality, our gender identity, or there are many other reasons that we are sent into shame. For Here in Asia, for instance, simply making a mistake or being wrong about something can actually engender a huge amount of shame in an individual. Overwhelmingly, your story is about liberating yourself from shame. So how do we do that, Linda? How do we liberate ourselves from shame? What are the signs that we are actually living in shame? And how do we unpack that to reclaim our worthiness and power? Well, I mean, the fact that we know how shame impacts us is very, very useful when you're trying to figure out whether or not you are experiencing shame. So it's very, very hard when you are in a shame state (laughs) to identify that you're in it. But you can look at the symptoms, right? So you can look and say, okay, am I, first of all, thinking clearly? Because not only does shame uh, create disconnection between you and other people, it actually creates disconnection in the brain itself. It makes it more difficult for complex brain interaction. So you go into a state where you're not thinking clearly, right? You might be, you know, operating in kind of a knee-jerk way. You're operating in a way where you say something and you're like, I don't even agree with that, but I'm going to say it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) 
um, you know, because you're because you're going so quickly that you're not having sort of nuanced thought, right? So, so one, you can kind of check in with yourself and say, okay, what's going on here? You know, am I am I disconnecting within myself? You know, am I having trouble really? you know, looking at this from a nuanced perspective. But second of all, am I disconnecting from others, right? Like, am I having a difficult time hearing that this other person just told me that I lied to them? Because all I can hear in my brain is they think I'm a terrible person. I want to tell them I'm not a terrible person. By the way, you're a terrible person. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> or whatever it is, right? So if you are having difficulty connecting with the other person, listening, to them, for example, or checking in with yourself, you know, is this really something that I did wrong at all, right? If you're having difficulty with connecting internally or externally, that's a sign that you're in the shame state. And one of the ways in which you can step away is um, from that is to literally step away, right? And to pause and to observe and to say, okay, I see the symptoms of this thing. So am I in this state? And I think also cut yourself a little bit of slack, right? Because the reality is, is that many of us experience shame, as you said, on all kinds of topics, uh, but that we are really trained to experience shame on certain topics, particularly sexuality. Yeah. So there's, a, there's a, an adage called Hebb's axiom that says neurons that fire together, wire together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so essentially, the axiom um, talks about how you can create brain traps. If two neural circuits, such as sexuality and shame, are fired simultaneously, often enough, eventually firing the neural circuit for one will automatically activate the neural circuit for the other. And that's certainly how many of us were raised to see sexuality. We were raised to see sexuality via a shame-based frame. If I do this, I'll be good. If I do this, I'll be bad. <laughs> and and so those things have become connected. So there is a natural um, uh, reaction, this, this brain trap that happens in us that causes us to shame ourselves. It causes us to shame others, right? Um, that, that we need to actually do work to actually repave neuropathways, <laughs> which takes time. You know, in, in order to repave a neuropathway, you have to behave differently again and again and again and again, which is where that pausing and reflecting and reframing and coming again and behaving differently comes in. Um, because over time, we are actually able to um, to repave our neuropathways and to and to live into a new way of being a, a more liberating way of being I want to bring you back to something really powerful that you said before though and that was that you felt something was wrong so even though you couldn't articulate it as shame in that moment there was obviously something going on inside your psyche where you knew that the way that you were being asked to live your life was not quite right or that the way you were being asked to feel ashamed about yourself was not quite right. Can you explain more about that sense, that feeling that you actually had? Because it seems to me that that could be a good trigger for people to have a look at and go, oh, hello, who? what am I buying into here that's not for my highest good? You know, what you're making me think about is this really common theme that came up in my interviews. I should mention, I actually have done 12 years of interviews with people who were raised in white evangelical Christian churches as girls. And one of the things that came up again and again and again is that we didn't trust ourselves. Oh, that's powerful. Mm. And that we were taught not to. You know, we were taught that the body and the self was evil 
and was bad. And whatever our desires were, 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 were worldly, essentially. And that we needed to control our bodies and control our minds and control our hearts, which were sinful, and, um, and allow ourselves to be controlled by higher things. Now, of course, the, the difficulty with this is that the individuals that communicated higher things to us were also individuals, <laughs> right? They were yeah. people. They were the leaders of churches. They were the leaders of our small groups. So what ended up happening was that we silenced our own knowledge and in an effort to bring in uh, a higher state of, of godliness, we elevated the perspectives of other individuals who were ranked at a higher mm. um, level in the, in the religious hierarchy. Sure. And we forgot <laughs> that God, or whatever word you want to use, you know, lives all inside and around us, you know, and that we have no less access to a sense of deep knowing <laughs> um, that I, you know, from my context would think of as the Holy Spirit, right? That, that still small voice that whispers in our ear, but that others might, you know, think of as the gut, right? The right. deep knowledge. Absolutely. You know, we yeah, we have no less access to that than than anyone else. So, so we were creating, <laughs> we were creating a, a culture collectively as a community where those who had less power were taught that we had less God, essentially, right? And therefore, we could not trust our voices and our knowledge. We had to trust those who had God. Now, of course, I live in a, a the white evangelical church where only men are allowed to be in top levels of power. Um, there are huge issues with all kinds of <laughs> power and privilege, you know, um, in our society and certainly in our church as well as a major part of society. So what ends up happening is you have the internal um, and the external silencing of a lot of people, including women and girls. So a lot of my interviewees and I, we had to learn how to trust ourselves. And that is not a simple thing. You don't flick your fingers and all of a sudden learn how to trust yourself and learn how to listen to the inner knowing that's been talking to you all along, especially when you've had that kind of external pressure going on for Absolutely. most of your life. I find it fascinating then, Linda, because you're talking there about how trust in yourself had been diluted. It had been taken from you. You're living in a sense of shame, and yet you found it within yourself to actually step away from the evangelical church. Now, this was obviously the first step in your sexual emancipation, but what fears did you have to overcome in order to liberate yourself from the only community, the only way of being that you'd ever known? The liberation, you know, really was a liberation of uh, at various levels. So certainly there was the leaving of the church. But, you know, the, the title of my book, when I say breaking free, what I'm really talking about is the internal liberation that actually didn't come until after I left. Certainly when I left my church community, there was a lot of fear. I was scared of losing the approval of my family and my community, um, losing my life purpose, losing my assurance that I was good and my access to something greater than myself. Um, but I chose to face that fear because I believed 
that it would allow me to be free from the sexual shame and fear and anxiety that had haunted me as a young person and that I would be able to be my authentic self. And what I discovered is that actually that was not the case at all, that I left and yet I still was overwhelmed by sexual shame and fear and anxiety and that it was manifesting in ways that actually mimicked PTSD often. I was having nightmares. I was having extreme anxiety that resulted in my, um, you know, being, for example, I have eczema. So my eczema would come out and I'd be scratching myself until I bled, right? So it lived in my body. Um, I started taking pregnancy tests, even though I wasn't having sex. Once the idea that I might have sex before marriage and be deemed impure or unworthy um, even entered into my mind, because really I was... I was desperate to please a community that I had already left (laughs) because I had internalized what they had taught me um, and what the world teaches us uh, about purity and about being good or being bad. So really the real work of liberation came after leaving the community when things got much more complicated. When I was within the church, I was able to say, you say this. I'm not sure how I feel about this. Let me think about that. You know, I am separate from this. I am separate from you. So let me let me consider what you're saying. Now, once I'd walked away and all of this lived inside of me because I had so deeply internalized the shame, now the conversation, the battle, the war was happening inside of me. And that was much more difficult to free myself from. Absolutely. You lose context when you're battling with yourself in that way because you're not quite sure which is the authentic you and which is the indoctrination. Is that what you That's, found as well? That is a perfect way to put it. That's a perfect way to put it. So you're doing this this deconstruction inside of you and you're trying, yes, exactly right. You're, you're trying to say, okay, what is my gut, right? Mm. What is deep knowledge? What is the Holy Spirit? Again, if we want to use that language. And and what is habit? (laughs) (laughs) Right. You know, and what is what I've been told a million times before, uh, you know, and, and, and feels like gut knowledge, but is actually just how I'm used to being treated and how I'm used to treating myself and how I'm used to believing the world is. So there was so much difficult deconstruction. And really the thing that was life-saving for me was when I would say about five years after I left the church, it was after I went back and started calling up some of my girlfriends who had been raised in the church with me. I started telling them about the fear and the anxiety and the PTSD-like experiences I was having. And then just sat with my jaw dropped to the floor as they told me incredibly similar stories from their own lives. And some of them had stayed in the church and had done everything just the way they were supposed to and had waited to have their first kiss at the altar even, you know, whereas others were actively having sex outside of marriage or, you know, whatever it was. Um, You know, some were part of the LGBTQ community, some were survivors, you know, there was a huge variety in our life choices and yet, um, and not just choices, our life experiences. And yet there were these, these recurrent themes these recurrent themes of shame and fear and anxiety and the PTSD-like experiences. And that realization that I wasn't alone is what really began my own journey to healing because it allowed me to separate, you know, what is me and what is indoctrination. And it's so much easier to see things in other people's lives. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, yes, it is. Linda, when I hear about the pressures that you were put under, when I hear about the trauma, when I hear about the the abuse, the psychological abuse 
that you are subject to. And I know that there will be people listening who can relate to this in their own experiences, in their own lives. I feel that most of us have probably been subject to this kind of indoctrination in some form or another. Overwhelmingly, as I hear you speaking and as I was reading your book, I felt angry. I felt angry about the way that you were being treated and that you were indoctrinated. Did you ever get to the place where you were angry? And if so, did that anger, that defiance and rebellion have a part to play in your liberation? Anger was a really important driving, I want to say more than emotion, experience Mm. for many years, right? It was anger that arose when I started to understand that these were not just the way things were, that I had been taught very specific things that had been designed, (laughs) you know, in very, very um, specific contexts, et cetera. Um, You know, every new piece of knowledge that I got that I was able to say, oh, that's why I'm experiencing this. That's why um, my childhood girlfriends are experiencing this. That's why, you know, people I've interviewed around the country for, you know, 12 years are experiencing this. Uh, you know, the fire of anger is what is what moved me forward into the next stage of exploration. Now, I would say that anger was a really important part of the phase of deconstruction for me right? Anger allowed me to pull it all apart and drove me forward as I separated out, uh, you know, as, as you were saying before so beautifully, my authentic self from my indoctrination. Now, when I started to get into the point of reconstruction, of creating a new way of looking at the world, which you cannot do without deconstruction, there's no way to sort of build upon <laughs> you no. know, an existing no. worldview without pulling it apart. That's when I started to shift away from anger being a driving emotion for me. And it started to become about, you know, what does, what does a healthy sexual ethic look like for me? What does living um, in a way in which I am my whole self, right? In which I am my mind, in which I am my spirit, in which I am my body, in which it is all part of me, um, you know, what does that look like? It's interesting. I, I have done a lot of research on social good. I, I have a, a, another life <laughs> where, <laughs> where I, I study purpose and other things related to um, how we create positive change in the world. And one of the pieces of research that I came across basically said that if you move uh, as a person, a change agent in the world from a root of pain, um, eventually you will burn out because pain is a difficult driver, right? It's an important one, but it is difficult. So eventually the researchers suggested, you know, if you really want to be in this for the long run, you need to shift from a pain driver to a hope driver. So, you know, for example, one who has experienced sexual violence um, and is doing work within sexual violence, you know, might be driven for a very long time by the pain that they experienced and that others experience, but eventually come to a point where they say, you know, what keeps me going is uh, creating a world in which uh, we can walk, we can walk through the world you know, with a degree of physical safety that we don't have right now. So it is this vision for safety and for freedom that is what drives me. Okay. And, I, and I think that's what I have done through the reconstruction process is started to, started to see another way that we could be as a world, right? Yeah. 
and that and that has has you know the present the anger is still present but it it plays a much um less driving role than it did in this new vision well there's two things that i pick up from what you just said there first of all i think it's important for people to understand that anger is a very constructive part of the process because anger itself particularly in women around the world can be a source of shame Mm, absolutely we're not allowed to be angry or express anger. So I love how you explain the way that anger was actually a constructive force that it propelled you forward. The other thing that I picked up, though, is that at one point you shifted from fighting against something to standing for something. Mm, that's very well put, yes. And so we can't allow ourselves, as we liberate ourselves from whatever it is that is holding us back, our shame, our lack of trust in ourselves, at some point it is healthiest for us, it is wisest for us to shift that into a sense of standing for something. As you were saying, if you're a survivor, you come from the pain and you start standing for women's safety. In your case, obviously, you've come from sexual oppression and you started standing for the liberation of yourself and women, people all over the world. And I I feel that's a really powerful message to get across there so that you, it gets turned into something positive and constructive for the world. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Yeah, it felt it was an important part of my process. And it was interesting when I found the research and, and realized that there was a similar process that many, many change agents go through. So I want to talk about your parents, your community, your friends that were around you as you were growing up. Obviously, they love you dearly. And there's no way that they were choosing to cause this kind of trauma, to oppress you in this way, purposefully, deliberately. So how do we know as individuals that our actions, particularly those that we feel are being pursued with good intentions, how are we sure that those actions are not undermining the liberty of others? It's a really great question because uh, particularly when you're talking about liberation in terms of the mind, I think it can be very difficult to ascertain. Um, You know, certainly there are physical boundaries you know, that you can create around someone. And those are more obvious to identify. Um, You know, there are structural boundaries, which are more difficult to identify, but, uh, you know, at least there's a a degree of tangibility. And then there are the, the, there is the, the control of the mind, right? And I think one of the things that I uh, find useful when I talk with parents about this, about how they should talk with young people um, and say, listen, I do have some feelings about you sh- what you should and should not do in terms of sexuality, but I don't want to create uh, mind uh, control, right? I don't want to. Sure. I don't want to create a brain state that undermines your liberty. You know. So one of the things that I often tell parents is, you know, there's a difference between giving someone advice, right? Saying this is this is what I did. This is what I might recommend to you for these reasons, but I am with you and I am for you, whatever you choose. Yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah. And there's a difference between that and shaming someone. If you do this, you will be good. You will be loved. Mm -hmm. You know, if you don't do this or vice versa, right, you will be dangerous. 
um, you will be rejected, um, you will be broken. That is a shaming frame, right? Where you were talking to people about who they are. Uh, and, and there are tricky ways you can talk to people about who you are. You might not tell someone you will be bad, but if you tell someone you will be lucky <laughs> if anyone, you know, good loves you, <laughs> you know, the message is there, right? Um, so, so you really need to kind of unpack, you know, are, are you really still giving the person the internal freedom to make choices and know that they will remain worthy and loved in your eyes, regardless of the choices that they make? Or are you creating ultimatums that, um, that limit their freedom? Linda, your story is particularly poignant. It's particularly palpable. But not everybody's story of shame or liberation is going to be quite as, can I use the word extreme, as yours. And sometimes it's a lot more subtle. And I want to tell you a story. I have four parakeets, you call them. Down under, we call them budgies. I have four budgies. And because they live with me, they live in a very, very big cage and they live a very, very luxurious life. They are so comfortable in their cage that whenever I open the door to allow them to fly free, they won't leave the cage. They are actually comfortable in the confines of what I have provided for them. So entrapment can actually feel comfortable especially if the limitations are just far enough out that they don't actually rub against our soul and cause blisters. How can we tell if we are comfortably oppressed? That's such a great metaphor. I love that. <laughs> such a great story and a beautiful picture of, of um, your life. So listen, I'm not concerned as much about people um, who truly are comfortable within confines. Um, you know, that having been said, there are some who believe that they are comfortable and that is a belief that they have cultivated within themselves, though they are actually not comfortable. What I'm most concerned about, however, is when those who are quote unquote comfortable within um, the confines uh, control others, right? So very often what we see is I'm, I have to put up with this so you have to put up with this. Mm-hmm. Yes. I am controlled by this and have been my whole life and I have had to suffer and I have had to find my way through so you have to. Being confronted with someone else's courage to actually liberate themselves could be very confronting if you have allowed yourself to become comfortable in that kind of in those kinds of conditions. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. So I think my message would be um, just because, you know, something works for you doesn't mean that it is going to work for everyone. And how do we how do we really allow people to have the freedom to decide uh, whether or not they want to fly out of that out of that cage? cage. Right. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. My final question is one that I ask every guest um, on the Eudaimonia podcast. Can you recommend a morning reminder? So this might be a daily ritual or a practice, an affirmation that can help my listeners liberate themselves in small or significant ways in their daily lives. You know, I grew up learning, as I think many of us did, that my body was not as important as my mind or my spirit. And, you know, as I was talking about before, not only was it not as important, but it needed to be controlled. Um, and so there was a real hierarchy. Yeah. <laughs> you know, at, at best, it was, it was uh, neutral. And at worst, it was terrible. Um, 
so for me, so much of my spiritual life has been about reintegrating myself as a whole person, as an embodied person. Yeah. So one of the things that I do is I have a, a morning practice that I do every morning, you know, most mornings. <laughs> every once in a while, I, you know, I don't do so well. But, um, but a morning practice that I do that involves yoga and um, journaling and most importantly involves dance. So I dance for one song every day. It only takes one song's worth, right? Um, but that is, I think, in some some days, the best part of my day, right? There's something about this experience of uh, feeling my body as part of my waking up to the world every day. So, so really trying to find different ways to bring my body into um, integration with the rest of myself that, that has been very powerful for me and might be powerful for others as well. That sounds truly amazing. Linda K. Klein, you have got so much to offer in terms of liberation from social constraints, liberation from shame, liberation from our own entrapments, the entrapments that we buy into. How do people get a hold of you if they want to learn more about Pure and the other projects that you have going? Mm, thank you for asking that. So I do have a website. It's Linda K. Klein. And my middle name is actually spelled K-A-Y. So it's Linda K. Klein with my middle name spelled out, dot com. And there's a page on that website called Break Free Together. And you can also get there directly by just going to breakfreetogether.org. And Break Free Together is about the work that I do um, that came out of the book. So whereas the book is really about white evangelical um, Christians who were raised in the community as girls and their experiences as a case study for us to understand the impact of sexual shaming, um, Break Free Together is about how we all can come into a, a place of claiming our bodies, claiming our stories, and claiming ourselves. Uh, so you can learn more about that work there as well. I'm truly grateful for all the work you do and also for choosing to spend some time with me here on the Udemoto podcast, Linda. It's been such a pleasure. Oh, thank you so much for having me. This was a joy. Jane Fonda once said, the whole point of liberation is that you get out, restructure your life, Act by yourself. You've been listening to the Eudaimonia podcast. If you'd like to learn more about how to live a truly flourishing life, please subscribe and check out eudaimoniapod.com for more inspiring episodes. I'm Kim Forrester. Until next time, be well, be kind to yourself, and liberate yourself to live fully. The 2019 Wellness Summit is almost here. I love being at these events. They're always such a great, positive environment. And it's been really great to um, listen to like-minded people and to um, meet a few people, actually. I've been to every summit and I've been to every one and I'll always keep coming. It's always inspiring. Yeah, it's been a real eye-opener. We're actually signed up to go to the breakthrough now. It's very motivating. I think it's great to listen to people who are inspired. And there's always something to learn and something to take away. I think uh, for myself and giving myself that um, opportunity to, to learn. There's so much going on in life and everything that you can get distracted and forget the things that you should be doing. And this always reminds you to get back on track and, and um, to focus on the things that are important, a holistic health. Just do it, yeah. Just yeah, suck it up and do it. It's, uh, it could be life-changing, yeah. I would say it's awesome and it's the start of changing your life. Come along, see what it's about, and enjoy it. It's an amazing event with like-minded, positive people. 
and you can't help but um, walk away feeling great. Positive Mentor presents the 2019 Wellness Summit, August 17 and 18 in Melbourne. Can you afford to miss out? Tickets at thewellnesssummit.com. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.